Ostensibly, the Academy Awards are meant to celebrate the very best films of the year based solely on merit. Using that metric alone would result in a fair amount of upsets because what one considers a great film is deeply personal. But very few films ever win on merit alone. Ultimately, it comes down to the campaign. Now, when one thinks of the great upsets in Oscars history, the 55th Academy Awards isn't one that jumps to mind, mainly because the Best Picture winner, Gandhi, a sweeping epic biopic about one of the most universally admired figures of the 20th century, is a quintessential Best Picture winner. But it is also an example of a ferocious, calculated, and successful campaign. Director Richard Edinburgh spread buzz about his passion project by appearing arm-in-arm with Coretta Scott King and Andrew Young, addressing UNICEF dignitaries, and winning the Martin Luther King Jr. Peace Prize. Meanwhile, Gandhi's biggest competition, E.T., dominated the box office and infiltrated every home in America through magnets, toys, and McDonald's tie-ins. There was a time when audience popularity meant something at the Oscars, but by 1983, such overt commercialism proved too distasteful for Academy voters. It's easy to point out the inherent fallacies of the Oscars process when the absence are egregious, but perhaps it is just as important to look at how the process works even when the wins make sense. Hello and welcome to For Your Reconsideration, the podcast where we re-examine best picture races and determine if the Academy got it right. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And this week we are discussing the 55th Academy Awards held in 1983, celebrating the best films of 1982. Uh, the awards were hosted by Liza Minnelli, Dudley Moore, Richard Pryor, and Walter Matthau. Wow. Whole team of people up there. But we're still in the in the era of, of us not being alive. So let's go through a little bit of context about what was happening in 1982 when these films were coming out. So in 1982, the president was Ronald Reagan. Fun times. That year in November, the severe early 1980s recession ended. And on November 30th, Michael Jackson released Thriller. So fun times in 1982. People were getting jobs. Thriller came out. It's exciting. Uh, the year in film. On July 9th, the sci-fi movie Tron was the first feature film to use computer animation extensively. And July 23rd, during production of Twilight Zone the movie, 53-year-old American actor Vic Morrow and two child actors were accidentally killed during a scene involving an operated helicopter. And the accident led to reforms in filmmaking safety and child labor laws. We really need to watch that Cursed Films episode. About that movie? Yeah. Hmm. What I kind of, like, maybe it's just because they're kids. Like, they have the guy's name, but they don't have, like, the two, the names of the two kids that died. Maybe, yeah. I didn't really look that hard, though. All right. So, do you want to know what the uh, top ten movies of 1982 were? I sure do, Devin. All right. Well, at number ten, we have Annie. Number nine, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Number eight, Poltergeist. Number seven, 48 Hours. Number six, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. God. Number five, Porky's. Number four, Rocky III. Number three, An Officer and a Gentleman. Number two, Oscar nominee, Tootsie. And number one, Oscar nominee, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. Also, a few notable film debuts from 1982. Oh, my God. Just four of them. You ready? Yeah. Gina Davis in Tootsie. That was her film debut. Okay. Hugh Grant. C. Thomas Howell in E.T. The Extraterrestrial. 
and Angelina Jolie. Nice. All right. On to the Sarah. So was it not Henry Thomas's first role then? Yeah, it was. Oh, Henry. I guess not. Okay. He wasn't on that list. Yeah. Drew Barrymore must have been acting before that too. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, actually, that might have been Drew Barrymore's first movie. Hmm. I don't know why it's I didn't include that. Maybe not. Who knows? Debut show. Who knows? Not okay. you. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. At the ceremony, some fun facts. Jessica Lange became the first performer in four decades to receive nominations in both acting categories in the same year, and she ultimately won Best Supporting Actress for Tootsie. She's also nominated for Best Lead Actress for Frances. Wait, she won Best Supporting Actress for Tootsie? She sure did, Kyle. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, sure. What? Okay. <laughs> That's fine. Like, what? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. You can see who looks at the information for the podcast. This is shocking. <laughs> I'm shocked. All right. All right. Meryl Streep, the Best Actress winner for Sophie's Choice, became the sixth performer to win in both lead and supporting categories just three years after winning Best Supporting Actress for Kramer versus Kramer. One of one of many nominations that she would go on to get. Uh, Louis Gossett Jr. became the first African-American actor to win Best Supporting Actor for his performance in An Officer and a Gentleman. And he was the first African-American actor to win an Oscar since Sidney Poitier in 1963. So it had been about 30 years. 20. What? 20. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) I mean, it's still unjust. Still a problem, I think. All right. Uh, this, this is the first ceremony, and I'm going to assume the only, but I don't know about that, where, the, where four nominated actors performed in drag. <laughs> we had Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie, Julie Andrews and Victor Victoria, Robert Preston and Victor Victoria, and John Lithgow in The World According to Garp. And this also marked the first of 28 consecutive years where a Barbara Walters interview special aired prior to the ceremony. Do you remember those Barbara Walters yeah, specials? Yeah, I do. I do. Those were good. She's wonderful. I know. She should... I mean, she's not canceled, is she? No, she's just like retired. Okay. But she <laughs> should like come out and do it again sometime. I know. Okay. Alrighty, so that's it about that. You want to get in and talk about the movies that were nominated? That is why I'm here, Devin. Okay. So first up, I'm going to talk about a movie... You know, we ran into a problem that we usually don't run into when we're talking about more contemporary yeah, ceremonies. Yeah. But one of the nominated films, Missing, by Costa Garv- Gavras, uh, was on. we were unable to find anywhere where we could watch it. Um, it wasn't available to rent, to stream anywhere. And right now, when we're recording this, we're still in quarantine, so we couldn't go to the library to see if it was yeah. there. And we're not in a position where we can buy movies, so <laughs> for this podcast, sure. <laughs> so, uh, so we unfortunately we weren't able to see it, but I do want to talk a little bit about it because it was one of the five movies nominated. Um, so, like I said, it was missing. Um, distributed by Universal Pictures. Synopsis. When an idealistic American writer disappears during the Chilean coup d'etat in September 1973, his wife and father tried to find him. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 85%, a critic score of 94%, and the consensus reads, Thanks in large part to strong performances by Sissy Spacek and Jack Lemmon, Missing is both a gripping character exploration and an effective political thriller. At the box office, it made $14 to $16 million dollars. Um, it was nominated for four Oscars and won one for Best Adapted Screenplay. And it also won the Palme d'Or at the 1982 Cannes Film Festival. It's honestly a shame that this movie is nowhere to be found. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it was written by the director, Costa Gavras and Donald E. Stewart, and was based on the execution of Charles Horman, an American sacrifice from 1978, and inspired by the true story of American journalist Charles Horman. Um, well, spoiler. So, alert. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if this has to do with why it wasn't found, but I did find this, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, in 1983, a year after the film's theatrical release, both the film, which was then in home video market, and Thomas Hauser's book were removed from the United States market following a lawsuit filed against the director ah. and Universal Pictures by former ambassador Nathaniel Davis and two others for defamation of character. They ultimately lost their lawsuit, and it says that oh. it was re-released by Universal in 2006, but I don't know if that has anything to do with why it's... I'm going to do some research after this. Hard to find. Out. Yeah. But since we can't give you our thoughts on it, I'll give you Roger Ebert's thoughts on it. Yeah. He gave the film three stars, writing that while the film was being cited for courage and criticism of the U.S. government, the criticism was clouded by its direction, but the best scenes were where Lemon and SpaceX characters were bogged down by the embassy's niceties in their search. Right on. You know, I'm really mad at myself because I lost five bucks to myself, actually. How does that work? Well, I I would I put money on the fact that you were going to say Seems like Kyle, this movie is missing. Does that sound like something I would say or yes, something you would say? Yes, it does. No, it sounds like something you would say 100% on a podcast. You would no, you wouldn't stoop that low in real life to make that joke, but you put a microphone in front of you and here comes the puns, okay? So you lost five dollars. Yeah, Does that like, mean you should I, give me five. I even tried to set you up for that, like, and you still didn't do it. And I'm just mad. I'm just upset, honestly. I'm sorry. I will say, it's I do okay. think that, that movie sounds very interesting. It does. It sounds we like able to watch it. it sounds like it could have been our, our our top choice. Could have been, but we'll never know. Yeah. All right, let's talk about movies we did watch. Woohoo! First up, we have Tootsie, directed by Sidney Pollack and distributed by Columbia Pictures. Synopsis, Michael Dorsey, an unsuccessful actor, disguises himself as a woman in order to get a role on a trashy hospital soap. Uh, it was written by Larry Gelbart and Murray Shizgol, with uncredited work by Barry Levinson and Elaine May, and the story by Don McGuire and Larry Gelbart. To prepare for his role, Hoffman watched the film Le Cage Faux several times. He also visited the set of General Hospital for research and conducted extensive makeup tests. In an interview for the American Film Institute, Hoffman said that he was shocked that although he could be made up to appear as a credible woman, he would never be a beautiful one. He said that he had an epiphany when he realized that although he found this woman interesting, he would not have spoken to her at a party because she was not beautiful, and that as a result, he had missed out on many conversations with interesting women. He said that? He said that. He also concluded that he, because of these, he, this, he never regarded Tootsie as a comedy. What else is it then? I guess some sort of cautionary tale about talking to ugly women. I don't know. Jesus. <laughs> Uh, after 115 days, it surpassed Close Encounters of the Third Kind as Columbia's biggest domestic hit of all time. Roger Ebert wrote of Tootsie, Tootsie is the kind of movie with a capital M that they used to make in the 1940s when they weren't afraid to mix up absurdity with seriousness, social comment with farce, and a little heartfelt tenderness right in there with the laughs. This movie gets you coming and going. The movie also manages to make some lighthearted but well-aimed observations about sexism. It also pokes satirical fun at soap operas, New York show business agents, and the Manhattan social pecking order. Mm-hmm. What, what did you think of Tootsie, Kyle? I liked it. I did. I didn't think it was, like, phenomenal. Uh, I definitely, like, I don't know. I'm glad I checked it off the list, I guess. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, I did think parts of it were quite funny. Uh, I thought it was honestly like really well made by Sidney Pollock, um, who is becoming the better Sidney in my book, I think, as of as of the rest of this uh, podcast. But uh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was fun. I did. I thought I thought it was fun. Uh, as I pointed out to you before, like I think it's I think it's really speaking of Sidney Pollock. I think it's really interesting that this movie is about a, a guy who can't get work, and so. Sidney Pollack, the director, takes a role in this movie as like the best supporting actor yeah. in the film, like by far. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and he kills it, and I love it. But I just I I think that's kind of ironic that they're making this story about how hard it is to get work, and then he he literally swoops in and takes a role from an actor. Takes a role from an actor <laughs> that could, that obviously a sensational role as the agent um, of Dustin Hoffman's character. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's of its time. Mm-hmm. It's of its time, which I'm sure you're going to address. But it didn't mean I didn't laugh a few times. I just think overall, I can't believe it's a Best Picture nominee. Like, yeah. it just it doesn't feel like it is. It just feels like a fun little movie you, you went to go see in 1982. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I, I think they only gave it because it's like, Dustin Hoffman's a woman half the movie. And it's just. Yeah. Other than that, there's nothing really that special to it. Like, and again, I think Hollywood loves a good satire about the business. Yes, they love so movies like, about themselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, I mean, maybe that fits the criteria, but yeah, overall, I'd say this was just a okay movie that I enjoyed. But mm-hmm. like at the end of the day, it's, it's forgettable to me. So, sure, I agree. I'd actually seen Tootsie before, so this is my second time seeing it. And the last time I saw it, I was probably like young because I don't even know how old I was when I saw it. Um. And I really like, I remember really liking it when I first saw it. Watching it now, I don't think that it really holds up that well in 2020. I think, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing to me. Right now, I'm also watching Mrs. America on FX and Hulu. But, um, so, like, looking at this film, which came out in 1982, like, right after the women's liberation movement in the 70s, I feel like it's kind of this idea, you know, there was this idea after president obama was elected that we were living in like a post-racial society and like because we'd done this like we didn't have to worry about racism anymore which obviously is proven to be incorrect but i think that like after um the women's liberation movement and women did make a lot of strides in becoming equal it was kind of like oh we're living like in a post-sexism environment so now we can make this movie about this man being a woman and it very much is like like a male savior type thing where he comes in as a woman and kind of like teaches these women how to stand up for themselves, which is off putting to me. But I do think, I think it is of its time in that way. I think they were like to them, they were saying something about sexism yeah. and I think they are saying about sexism. I just think in 2020, what they're saying is very different from what they thought they were saying. I think like in another way, it's almost like it's a, it's sugar coated idea of, you know, so yeah, sure. We just came off of this, the liberation movement, but I think still it's a hard pill for a lot of men to swallow this traditional, you know, male. Right. Whatever. But so like, I do feel it is a kind of a lighthearted approach to like almost to keep easing it into the, the, the culture. But yeah, again, I think in 1982, great, but yeah, but I feel like what he, what he like learns as a woman is just basically like, Oh, it's hard to walk in heels and, put on have to put on makeup all the time and buy all these clothes and it's expensive and also 
I think, sexual harassment in the workplace sucks. I think <laughs> sexual harassment, though, is the biggest thing they're going for. Yeah. I mean, I do. I, th- I think that's probably the biggest kind of thing they were swinging for there. But but I also think, it, like, it's, he it, repeatedly, like... It's muted, though. The way that he, like, deals with it is through, like... Fighting back. Fighting being aggressive, back. Being aggressive. Being aggressive in very, like, male ways, which, like, yeah. women are not going to be able to do. And, like, there's a scene where he's... um. Well, you're, it's like saying you're expecting women to act more masculine just to get, yeah. Right, exactly. It's like, I don't know. I just like had a problem with that. And there's like a scene too where he's filming a scene in the soap opera and um, the like character is an abused woman or something. And I think his character is supposed to tell her to like seek help through a shelter or something like that. But instead he tells her to like, he like ad libs a line about just like kicking his butt and like not letting him abuse her anymore and it was just very like placing the blame of domestic abuse on the woman as opposed yeah. to like which again i think it's like it's dated it's just dated i think d- yeah. dated is the, is the thing that makes it suffer the most for sure but the thing too that i find so frustrating about it is like it's it's billing itself as this like takedown of sexism and yet the movie the actual female characters in this movie are so undeveloped Right. That so it's like, how, but this is so sexist. Like, the only right. developed female character is a man. So, like... And how Jessica Lang, one best supporting actress, like, blows my fucking... That's why... I'm sorry. That's why it was such a surprise. Because, yeah, the, the female characters are underdeveloped. There's nothing there. Like, I don't know what... Right. It blows my mind that she, got, she gets a nomination, let alone... Well, and maybe the win. fact that she was also nominated in lead actress for Francis, which is um, a movie about Francis Farmer... Like, maybe is one of those things where, like, she wasn't going to beat Meryl Streep in that category, but it was, like, a, an Oscar for both of those roles combined sure. type of maybe, thing. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. I haven't seen Frances. But um, who was she up against in Supporting Actress? Let me see. I do want to say, too, though, the best part of this movie, who has nothing to do with its datedness, is Bill Murray. Bill Murray is the best part of so many movies. Bill Murray is just there to deliver laughs. And he's, like, I mean, he obviously, he's kind of like the audience member, like, getting used to somebody in drag you know it's just it's 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 great i love it i love Mm -hmm. it he's just there for great one-liners and to represent obviously like writers everywhere or whatever you know the art the art the unrecognized artists of our world yes i love him i love him oh my god where's his best at supporting actor nomination i don't know because he knocked it out of the park (laughs) he did though like i agree uh, like, he's only in like five minutes of the movie yeah though. and it's the best five <laughs> minutes of the movie it is though it's sad to say like i'm not like some bill murray like super fan it's just literally i would watch the, that movie again for his scenes only sure he cracked me up yeah i mean there are a lot of really funny parts of this movie sure um but there's also some problematic parts to it watching it now that's my that's my final thing do you want to know what other people thought about it yeah i guess all right, it has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 81% and a critic score of 90%. The critic's consensus reads, Tootsie doesn't squander its high-concept comedy premise with fine dialogue and sympathetic treatment of the characters. At the box office, it made $177.2 million, and like I said, it was the second-highest-grossing film of the year. At the Oscars, it was nominated for 10 Oscars. 10? 10. Count them. Uh, no, but it won one, Jessica Lange for Best Supporting Actress. As far as its legacy, the American Film Institute on their original list of the best films of all time, it was ranked at number 62. And on anniversary list, it ranked at number 69 on their list of 100 laughs. It ranked at number two. And it was preserved in the National Film. 69 for laughs. 
That's my motto. It was number two for laughs. Oh. What was it ranked 69 for? The anniversary list of the best films of all time. Oh. And it was preserved in the National Film Registry in That's 1998. really high on that list. Okay. But it's all right. I think number two for greatest comedies of all time is pretty high. That's true. That's true. That's true. There's some funnier movies than this. Right. There are. They're only talking about Bill Murray. <laughs> yeah. They're clearly and singling Sydney out. Pollack. <laughs> yeah. Sidney Pollack is honestly amazing in this movie. Yes. I loved it. Like, I can honestly, I don't blame him. At the, at, at the end of the day, I know I made that, like, that small, I don't know if it was a complaint, but, I mean, Sidney Pollack, when I read this role, was like, I fucking want to do this because it's great. He had to be talked into it, actually. He didn't want to take the part. Are you serious? Yeah. Dustin Hoffman talked him into it. Oh. Well, what are you going to do? <laughs> All right. You ready to move on to the next movie? Sure am. All right. Let's talk about that next Sydney then. We're talking The Verdict, directed by Sydney Lumet, uh, produced by 20th Century Fox. Synopsis. A lawyer sees the chance to salvage his career and self-respect by taking a medical malpractice case to trial rather than settling. It was written by David Mamet and based on Barry Reed's novel of the same name. The film rights to the novel were bought by the team of Richard Zanuck and David Brown. Author Arthur Hiller was originally attached to direct and David Mamet hired to write a screenplay. But they didn't like Mamet's script, so Hiller <laughs> left the project and the producers commissioned another screenplay from J. Preston Allen. The producers liked this script and were approached by Robert Redford, who liked the project but did not like Allen's script. Redford suggested they hire James Bridges as a writer-director, and Bridges wrote several drafts of the screenplay, but Redford was not happy with any of them, and Bridges left the project. Redford then began. Oh my God! Can meetings. we cut to the point, please? Redford then began having <laughs> meetings with Sidney Pollack without telling the producers, and they got irritated, so they fired Redford. Wait, Sidney Pollack? Sidney Lumet. Sidney Pollack. Sidney Pollack directed Tootsie. I understand that. Oh, this. I'm is... not done. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Honestly, the story of the making of this movie is far more interesting than than what's about to come. So they fired Redford, and then Zanuck and Brown hired Sidney Lumet to direct, sending him all versions of the script. And after several rewrites, Lumet decided that the story's original grittiness and fast was fast evolving and chose Mammoth's original script. Oh so God. after all of that, they ended up with the original script. Hey, that's Hollywood for you, baby. Yep. All right. What did you think of the verdict? I thought it was bad. <laughs> I thought it was very bad. I thought a lot of work apparently went into it to make such a bad movie. Did you really think it was bad? I thought it was like legitimately bad. Okay. Yeah. Like I actually like in in a way I sort of appreciate what the script was trying to do. Um, but it's like Sidney Lumet forgot how to direct when it came to this movie. Like I thought the performances were bad for the most part. I thought he did not know where to put a camera at, in any scene. I don't think there was. A, no, no, no. I lied. The opening shot, the pinball machine. It's my favorite shot of the movie. They, yeah. They peaked early. <laughs> it's literally there's just like while you're watching this movie it's like i don't understand how they made it like why they made it so poorly yeah like the only thing that's like kind of well done is the courtroom stuff but at the end of the day it's also so boring like the shot structure i'm just saying it's like wide shots and like all this stuff like this motherfucker did 12 angry men yeah and forgot how to make a courtroom drama movie <laughs> like it's honestly embarrassing I'm mad that it was nominated for you. Like, I, if Paul Newman wasn't in this movie, nothing would have happened with it. Like, let's put uh, Bill Murray in it. No, I'm just kidding. That would have been an Oscar winner for sure. But uh, you know what I mean? Just supplement someone who's not a classic Hollywood actor. You know, I think it wouldn't have been anything to be to be to be recognized. Like, it's not that great. It's not great. 
It's not good. It's not good. I'm going to stop talking. Okay. It's bad. I mean, I did not care for it. I don't know. I get what you're saying. I don't think that the direction was anything special. I don't think that the performances were great. And I think that there are there are people in this movie, you know, that are capable of really great performances. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying I think it all falls on Lumet's shoulders. Yeah. Poor well, direction I, all around. I honestly think that the script had some problems, too, in my opinion. And because um, I think I don't know, just the way that it's structured, like, I don't think See, it makes. But that's what I kind of thought was I thought that was the one interesting part about it was like the weird structure. Scenes that didn't feel traditional. Like, I, yeah. I honestly that's the one thing I liked. But then you. You toss it, nothing could have saved it, you know? Yeah. I And I also, like, in the courtroom stuff, the thing that, the one thing that really bothered me was, like, the big, like, pivotal moment where they're kind of, like, able to introduce this new evidence that, uh, I think, swings, like, sways the the way it's going. Doesn't come from Paul Newman. Like, he leaves it to the other lawyer to, like, ask the question of the witness that gets the new evidence brought in. And so I'm just like, it just bothered me so much because I'm like, why wouldn't he get to have this, like, victorious moment? Like, the whole movie is about him redeeming himself from going from someone who doesn't care about his work and care about the people that he's representing to someone who is doing it solely for those people. But he doesn't get to have that victorious moment where he actually, like, changes the course of the trial. I know, but I think it's actually more powerful that it was the other attorney. I think it makes, to the jury, makes it look like they fucked up. I know, but, like, as a movie, I wanted that moment where Paul Newman has it. And, like, he has this, like, closing argument, but it's, like, boring. It wouldn't have been earned. But it would have been something. But I don't know. It would have felt false. It would have felt like, well, nothing in this movie... Pretty, made this happen the guy was a bad lawyer he never was a good lawyer well they like, made it sound like he used to be a good lawyer I'm and then he got about burned the, i'm talking about in the course of the movie okay he's like yeah. never a good lawyer he constantly fucks this up yes like through through what's like cops when they turn in their badge and gun and then they go reckless yeah that's that's how he got his case is he's like fuck doing this the legal way I'm going to go track down a lady by nefarious means Yeah. to get my... Like, he literally broke into somebody's mailbox. That's a federal crime. That's true. Like, <laughs> I'm making this movie sound more interesting than it is. Yeah, and then I, I will say the ending made no sense to me at all. Like, at all. Like, when it ended, I was like, oh, was this movie about something else entirely like i felt like like when it got to the end i was like i feel like i wasn't paying attention or something because like i don't uh, understand what this ending there, is. i feel like there may have been a better movie there somewhere or something you know what i mean like i don't know i don't know Devin. i just think the stuff the way it ends with like the culmination like i don't know it ends on a note of like this love story kind of thing that's happening throughout it and like it just makes me feel like one that stuff never felt developed in any way no and then there's like a twist that i and then he clocks her and in the fucking jaw. then he punches her in the face in a public it's, place. It's awesome. <laughs> Dude, I do not I promote. Honestly, but it was the most random fucking moment. It was so I've random. I've seen in a movie in a well, long time. My problem, too, is, like, the tone of it is so weird. Like, I feel like, you know, the script is, like, this, like, gritty. Like, you know what I mean? Like, a lot of times it's going for this, like, realism, gritty, like, 70s era type stuff. But then, like, the performances are, like, very, like, melodramatic yeah. sometimes. And then okay. sometimes they're Again. very... And I'm just like, I don't... There's no... no falls on the Met shoulders. I know. It's bad. All right. 
Hey, Devin. Yeah. What did other people think? Well, it has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 88% and a critic score of 88%. And the critic's consensus reads, Paul Newman is at the peak of his powers as an attorney who never lived up to his potential. In the verdict, supported by David Mamet's crackling script and Sidney Lumet's confident direction. Oh, no! <laughs> is that a robot wrote that? What the I mean, fuck? Yeah. Oh, literally? Okay. It's like, it's consent. It's like an yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That's all wrong. Okay. Well, the box office made $54 million. It was nominated for five Oscars and won zero. Okay, on the American Film Institute. It's an honor to just be nominated, okay? On the American Film Institute's list of 100 cheers, which is supposed to be inspiring films, it's ranked at number 75. I don't know what, what? this movie would inspire you to do. <laughs> oh my God. Take down the Catholic Church. I don't know. And on their list of the 10 top 10, it was ranked as the number four courtroom drama. And in 2013, the WGA ranked it as the 91st best screenplay of all time. I mean, again, I do like the screenplay. I disagree on that. I think they're just sucking up to David Mamet. That's what I think that list is. Yeah. All righty. Moving on to a movie we probably liked a little bit better. Wait, I just want to point out there's someone trying to deliver food across the street. And it's like, I think they don't know either how to get into the building or if they're at the right address. This person is very frustrated or confused. Maybe they're just talking. You I know what? I think they're just talking to that guy. Oh, right, never mind. Let's go back to the podcast. <laughs> okay. These are the things we do in quarantine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll turn into Jimmy Stewart. We're going crazy. All right. So let's talk about E.T., the extraterrestrial. Is that what E.T. stands for? <laughs> yeah. I do think it's funny. They don't say it in the movie. They don't. They don't say, like, they they, learn, they know what an extraterrestrial is. Yeah. And they call him E.T., but I feel like the only reason they made that the title is to, like, make that more clear why they're, why they're calling him E.T. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's also Elliot's initials, FYI. Oh, shit. Really? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. What's his last name? I don't remember. I just remember reading that. I don't believe it. Fake. Okay. Fake news. <laughs> anyway, it's directed by uh, Steven Spielberg, produced by Universal. Synopsis, a troubled child summons the courage to help a friendly alien escape Earth and return to his home world. Excuse me. It was written by Melissa Matheson, and the concept was based on an imaginary friend Spielberg created after his parents' divorce in 1960. And in 1980, Spielberg met Matheson and developed a new story from the failed project Night Skies that turned into this. It was released on June 11th, 1982, and it was an immediate blockbuster, surpassing Star Wars to become the highest grossing film of all time. A record it held for 11 years until Jurassic Park. (laughs) Why is the pause? Why is there a pause? Because I think it's funny. Spielberg is just dethroning himself. (laughs) All right. Here's a big one big piece of facts (laughs) carlo rambaldi who designed the aliens for close encounters of the third kind was hired to design the animatronics of et and his rambaldi's own painting women of delta led him to give the creature a unique extendable neck its face was inspired by those of carl sandberg albert einstein and ernest hemingway (laughs) wow what an insult Producer Kathleen Kennedy visited the Jules Stein Eye Institute to study real and glass eyes, and she hired Institute staffers to create E.T.'s eyes, which she felt were particularly important in engaging the audience. Four heads were created for filming, one as the main animatronic and the others for facial expressions, as well as a costume. Two dwarfs, Tamara DeTrue and Pat Billion, as well as a 12-year-old, Matthew Demerit, who was born without legs, took turns wearing the costume, depending on what scene was being filmed. 
and Demerit actually worked on his hands and played all scenes where he walked awkwardly or fell over. Hmm. The head was placed above that of the actors, and the actors could see through slits in his chest. Uh, Caprice Roth, a professional mime, filled prosthetics to play E.T.'s hands. The puppet was created in three months at the cost of $1.5 million. The major voice work of E.T. for the film was performed by Pat Welsh. She smoked two packs of cigarettes a day, which gave her voice a quality that sound effects creator Ben Burt liked. <laughs> she spent nine and a half hours recording her part and was paid $380 for her services. That's yes. unfortunate. <laughs> uh, sound effects creator also recorded 16 other people and various animals to create E.T.'s voice. These included Spielberg, Deborah Winger, his sleeping wife, who had a cold, a burp from his USC film professor, raccoons, otters, and horses. All that went into creating E.T. Yeah. Uh, Mars Incorporated refused to allow M&Ms to be used in the film, believing E.T. would frighten children. So the Hershey, the Hershey Company was then asked if Reese's Pieces could be used, and it agreed. The product placement resulted in a large increase in Reese's Pieces sales. Heck yeah. Also, Reese's Pieces are like 5,000 times better than M&M's. Dude, there's no comparison. One's just like chocolate with a color coating. The other's fucking delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and here's my favorite little thing. Richard Attenborough, the director of Gandhi, declared after the Oscar ceremony, quote, I was certain that not only would E.T. win, but it, that it should win. It was inventive, powerful, and wonderful. I make more mundane movies. End quote. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I just think that's funny. Someone wins an Oscar and they're like, you know what? It shouldn't have gone to me. Yeah. Oh, he's just being <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw E.T. <laughs> and then Spielberg's like, I like him. I'm going to cast him in my next big hit. What was he in? What, Spielberg Jurassic Park. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. You told me that. Spare no expense. So what do you think about E.T.? It's great. What, do you, what are we going to talk about E.T.? <laughs> yeah. like, you know what I mean? What? What? Oh, movie that deals with uh, aliens and uh, no dads. Another good Spielberg <laughs> joint. All right. Moving Which on. Which movie are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's Spielberg. It's great. Everyone knows it. Everyone loves it. Moving on. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. What did you think, Devin? I really have, I really have zero to add. It is a wonderful movie. Yeah. That, yeah. John. I loved it. Like, I'd, I'd seen it before, but I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. Same. And so I was kind of like, you know, there's a lot of movies that I loved as a kid that then I watched as an adult, and I'm like, ugh. But uh, this was not one of them. This was fantastic. I will say, though, the, I was telling my parents the weirdest thing, like, again, I haven't seen this movie since I was a kid, but, like, as we were watching it and things were happening, I was, like, remembering, you know, what happened yeah. and, like, how everything went. And then when it got to the part where E.T. is, like, dying i literally had right. no did we, recollection did we block of that. that out i, don't, I think it, so it like traumatic? traumatized yeah. my little child brain so much that i just like completely blocked I mean, it honestly, out honestly what really happened is like we probably watch these movies all the time but we get to a certain point and get bored and want to move on with something else so we remember we remember the first half of movies really well. and then we're for like, real right like yeah. i'm serious um but no but i remember the ending really well too obviously with the flying bikes and everything so like the flying bikes happens before that though you remember the moonlight scene not the no i remember the other one too. okay okay I'm just saying the moonlight scene is like the more yeah, that's the more iconic. Well, yeah, scene. and also because you, you see that every time you watch any Amblin picture. That's true. But um, yeah, no, I think I must have just been so traumatized by that that I blocked it out of my mind. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's very foreign to me. And John, William, that pair with John Williams score, I just cried through the final thirty minutes of this movie. So I cried through so much of it. But I think you know, watching it now as adult, I think like what Spielberg is so great at and what this movie so captures is his ability to really like put you in the place of a child and like 
remembering what it is to be a kid like i love the way like so many of the adults are just shot from like the waist up like the view of what a kid would see of an adult sure and just like that feeling of like not of like adults not listening to you and adults not believing you and just like having no power and like having like he's just so good at capturing all of that i don't know let me let me just like (laughs) let me let me shit shit on it for one second okay Okay. a couple things all right one Elliot's mother is called because he is drunk at school. Yes. He is in zero trouble. Okay. Even mm-hmm. though there's empty beer cans all around their house. They, you know, she doesn't know E.T. exists yet. Right. And he's drunk at school. Just saying, I'd be dead. Okay. Sure. I'd be killed. My mother would have killed me. <laughs> it's fair. I don't blame her. The other thing is this Keys guy. Okay. Mr. Keys. Yes. All right. We're supposed to, this is the introduction to like, oh, we're not seeing these adults faces. So let's throw a pair of keys on his. Oh, you're going to talk about this. So we know so we know that this person is this person, okay? Sure. Those keys switch sides of his pants constantly. And I'm very disappointed in Mr. Spielberg, okay? That's all. That's all. I'm just saying you're making like a specific directorial choice and you fuck even that up. I'm just saying. I just want to put that out there. Sure. Spielberg, I'm disappointed, okay? But uh, you know, if you need any extra work or anything, you throw, throw a dog <laughs> bone, I'll, I will I will take it back. No, I'm just kidding. All right. But that's like my one complaint <laughs> about this movie. Otherwise, it is like absolutely fantastic. Knocked out of the park. The brother character could have been better. But otherwise, it's fantastic. It's so good. And I think like part of the reason like I, I didn't include all this because it was too much stuff. But like so much of it is like biographical to his childhood and that kind of stuff. And that's why I think like sometime like that why it might be so strong too. Because sometimes I think when someone is like so personally attached to a story. Oh, yeah. That does make it better. Sure. It's like one of the, you know what I mean? Like the more specific the experience, the more sure. universal it can feel. But like. Yeah. I mean, Spielberg gets really good at making movies. He is. I don't know if people talk about that at all. Like this all of his best movies podcast. are really personal movies. You know what's not good? War Horse. I'm just kidding. I've never seen it. It didn't look good though, right? You know what's not good? Lincoln. Yeah. What was his, what was his personal <laughs> connection to Lincoln? Like, I don't. <laughs> but he's made a lot of good ones that are personal. Yes. He's made a lot of very good movies. Like, he's honestly, <laughs> do we talk about Spielberg enough, though? Like, just in general, I feel like, ugh, I'm just so tired of the kids I in my classes who are all just like, Tarantino and fucking Nolan, you know? Right. It's like, do we just forget or do we, like, brush off Spielberg because he's a fucking hit maker? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Although, I when think... was the last time Nolan released a fucking not a blockbuster? Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. whatever. Well, yeah, and I think that, like, Spielberg, he, like, makes blockbusters, but you also have to, like, consider the fact that he created blockbusters. Like, blockbusters weren't a thing before Spielberg. He has a unique style. I feel like people just think it's this, like, you know, um, it just feels, like, standard, like, cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. But it's not. It's, like, invented by him, and if it seems cookie cutter, it's because other people stole his shit. I know. But I also think, like, he's, he's such a... I think everyone recognizes him as one of the like great filmmakers, but all of his movies are such like just commercial successes and yeah. not necessarily like, you know, award winners because they are. Well, there's a lot of award winners too. Though. Well, yeah, later stuff. But I mean, like in the eighties, like the stuff that he became known for, like Jaws and E.T. and Jurassic Park and like that kind of stuff are not winning any Oscars. Do you know what I mean? Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But like. You ever watch it? There's actually, there's great footage of him watching the nominees when after he had directed Jaws and he was like really disappointed. I bet he was. Jaws is great. <laughs> I, jo- 
John was like an Uber hit. It was a critical success as well as an audience, you know. Right. Like I think he expected it, but I think Jaws did get some kind of. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it was. That We're not there yet. We'll cover no. it. But um. But then I wonder. Like, I wonder like when he did Schindler's List, if like part of him was just like, I'm gonna make a movie that they can't not nominate for best picture. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I'm gonna do to really cinch the deal? I'm gonna make it black and white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you how freaking artsy I can yeah. be. <laughs> Uh, you ever heard of the Holocaust? <laughs> you pulled out all the points. No, we can't talk. We can't. I'm not going to talk shit doing? about Sorry. Schindler's List. Yeah. But like, it's, I mean, it's, it's superb. It's great. So I can't. Like, yeah. We'll get to that, though. Ben Kingsley. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ben Kingsley. <laughs> Playing all the nationalities. Okay. <laughs> you want to know what He's other people good. think about yeah. E.T.? They do. They love it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, what I think is weird, it has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 72%. That is ridiculous. I want to be like, what? Dude, I bet Eminem's paid a bunch of people off. <laughs> I feel like it's just people being like contrarians. Like everybody loves E.T., so I'm going to say that E.T. sucks. But like, you're incorrect. Watch it again. Um, it has a critic score of 98%, and the critic's consensus reads, Plain is both an exciting sci-fi adventure and a remarkable portrait of childhood. Steven Spielberg's touching tale of a homesick alien remains a piece of movie magic for young and old. That's beautiful. Algorithm. Well said. You really made up for that fucking <laughs> lie. The lies you told earlier <laughs> about Verdict. Was it the first? I don't even remember what movie it was. I think so. I don't know. I don't know. I'm at the box the office. It was The Verdict. Because they're like, so well directed. It's like, it wasn't even directed. At the box office, E.T. made $792.9 million. Was How much? $792.9 million. Wow. Adjusted for inflation, it is the fourth highest grossing film of all time. Wow. So, yeah. Um, at the Oscars, it was nominated for nine awards, and it won four for score, sound, sound effects, and visual effects. And on the American Film Institute's original list of best films of all time, it's ranked at number 25, and the anniversary list, goes on up to 24 on their list of 100 thrills it ranks at number 44 100 cheers number six it's ranked as the 14th greatest score of all time on their 10 top 10 it's ranked as the number three sci-fi film on their list of 100 quotes et phone home is ranked at number 15 uh sight and sound on their list of the 250 greatest films of all time it's ranked at number 183 and it was preserved in the national film registry in 1994 quick question on all these lists how many does Gandhi place in front of it in any of them? Um, <clears throat> I don't have that right in front of me. Hmm. Well, that's not fair. It's not going to be on any AFI list because it is a British film. Oh. So it's not an American film. So it's not on the American oh. Film Institute's list. Plot twist. Loophole. What? It was a loophole for your question. Oh, true. Yeah. You want to talk right. about Gandhi? sure all right let's talk about the best picture winner for 1983 gandhi directed by richard attenborough distributed by columbia synopsis the life of the lawyer who became the famed leader of the indian revolts against the british rule through his philosophy of nonviolent protest it was written by john briley and was a british indian co-production oh cool okay it was British Edinburgh's dream to produce a film about Gandhi, and he first secured the film rights to his story in 1952. He tried to make it in 1962 with David Lean attached to direct, but Lean decided to make Lawrence of Arabia instead. 
Uh, Attenborough again attempted to resurrect the film in 1976 with backing from Warner Brothers, but the then Prime Minister of India, Indira Gandhi, declared a state of emergency in India and shooting became impossible. Uh, Finally, co-producer Ronnie Dew persuaded Prime Minister Indira Gandhi to provide the first $10 million from the National Film Development Corporation of India. And finally, in 1980, Attenborough was able to secure the remainder of the funding it needed to make the film. Ben Kingsley was chosen for the lead role partly because he has some Indian heritage on his father's side. Really? He's actually, yeah, partially Indian. That makes me feel It a makes little... me feel so much better. Well, honestly, it makes me feel better. I didn't know it was like an India co-production. Like, if honest, yeah. honestly, if, if like India or the industry in India is backing this, I'm more okay with it, right? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, there had to be some cooperation unless I found out they, sh- they shot everything in, you know, Tunisia or whatever. But like... Yeah. Uh, that makes me feel a little bit better about the movie, honestly. It did make me feel better. I didn't realize that Ben Kingsley was yeah. part Indian. It's okay. It it's just less offensive. Cause it is. Otherwise, it is seriously They still cringy. certainly like, made his skin darker than yeah. what it actually is yeah. for this. And it also, like, it was making me laugh because, like, as the film went on, his skin just, like, kept it getting darker. It randomly changed, right? No, I, w- I, don't, I wouldn't say it kept getting darker. It definitely were variations. It fluxed, yeah, it, it fluctuated a lot. It felt to me, though, like, when he was in the beginning, when he's in South Africa, and he's, like, wearing Western clothes still, his skin was, like, much lighter. And then it just felt like the more, like, quote-unquote Indian he became, the, like, darker his skin got. Mm. And it just made me think about <laughs> in Showboat. Oh. With Ava Gardner, she plays a biracial woman in that movie. And so, like, the whole thing is, like, she's passing as a white person because, you know, Ava Gardner's white. And then when she gets, like, revealed to be biracial, her skin throughout the movie just keeps getting darker and oh, darker. No. That's what it made me think of. Okay. <laughs> so what do you think of Gandhi, Devin? Um, one... I will say what I've been saying. Five minutes into this movie, I turned to you and I said, wow, I knew nothing about Gandhi. <laughs> Yeah, they don't really teach him too much in school, do they? No, which they should, because honestly, what I learned from this movie, because again, I didn't know anything about him apparently going in, is that he was um, he was a very good person. He was a very yeah. he's a person that I think that should be taught more in school. He sure quotes himself a lot. <laughs> there was like that weird thing when he would say things, and I'm like, uh, and I was like, oh, but that is like a that, Gandhi yeah, exactly. quote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. No, I really, it, for such a uh, influ- influential person, and like obviously I feel like we only got like a minute version of his life, even though it was three hours long. Uh, I don't know. It seemed like this should be someone we all study yeah. and admire. I mean, he's literally like the answer to a perfect world, even though he's clearly not in a way. I mean, that's the yeah. conflict of the story, but. Yeah, but I think, like, the things that he did and the way that he did them, obviously, in those circumstances, proved successful, which you wouldn't think that just, like, starving yourself would create peace between two warring religious factions. And ultimately, I guess it didn't since you then he was assassinated, but... um, Right, right. I want to show this, like, even no matter what you do... Right. You can't change everybody. I do think, like, so watching it, like, I did appreciate that. I appreciated learning more about him and about what he did. Um, Ultimately, I think this movie was way too long. And I think it suffered from that. And I also think that, like, I don't know, it's hard to, like, separate. Sometimes it's hard to separate, like, feeling strongly about a person and feeling strongly about a movie. Like, looking at it just purely as a movie, I don't think it's a good movie. I think that it doesn't do anything interesting film like 
the the set production is great. Like everything looks really good, but I don't think it's anything. It maybe it's just because we just watched Lawrence of Arabia, but it did feel so much like Lawrence of Arabia to me, and very like heavily mm. inspired by that movie. Yeah, but um, I don't know. I just didn't find any real aspect of it like overwhelmingly impressive from a film standpoint. Yeah, like I said, like I really think that. I'm glad that I watched the movie just because now I like know more about Gandhi and I think that he's a good person to know about. And I think, but I also think there was no real from again, just like from a film story point of view, it was very, they held and like, he was a really good person. So it's hard to say, but I'm just saying like, he's just, it's kind of just like, he's like this saint who did no wrong and just like, yeah, which maybe he was. I'm like, cool. But that doesn't make the most like interesting movie. Do you know what I mean? He yelled at his wife a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> like in the first like 10 minutes. <laughs> he didn't clock anybody in a public bar, but. He didn't. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think it's like two steps back from Lawrence of Arabia for sure. Um, cinematically, like it's fine. I would agree with that 100%. Uh, but yeah, it just felt kind of. It felt kind of by the book. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. There, you're, you're right. I don't think there was enough special to it. Now, obviously. You know, if that's the easiest way for people to learn more about somebody who should be, you know, uh, kind of immortalized and respected, great. It works in that level. But I think you're right with the length. It really lost me in the last 30 to 45 minutes. It just felt kind of phoned in at that point. And again, I don't know if that's just like a pacing thing, but I was I was surprisingly with the movie for the longest haul. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of been like, okay, where are we, you know, what are we doing? just it didn't feel like the passion was there in the last 30 to 45 minutes yeah and i think you know obviously like what happens in the last 30 40 minutes like you want to include his like final hunger strike thing and you like you know what i mean like that's a big deal sure but it just felt like the whole movie is kind of like about him um it's about the fight for india's independence from britain and so once that is achieved it does kind of feel like the momentum of the film just kind of gets like sucked out of it. And I think, I do think it's interesting to like say like, yeah, this was the fight, but there was still so much more fight to do after that was achieved to actually like make it viable. But just like as a, I don't know, the pacing just didn't work for a different structure. I think could have helped this movie. Yeah. Like some kind of different structure and like rather it's, kind of typical like someone's interviewing gandhi and it's kind of like walking back through different parts like i think we could have got the same message See, that more, like, so cool, especially up, when you have like candace bergen in there playing yeah. margaret burke white like you could have it be where, where he's talking to her about his life and do, you're yeah, right like, that would have been well, this is so much better so you don't open up with the david lean murder you know right scene from lawrence arabia, lawrence arabia thank you uh yeah you have it he's old She's coming to interview him, taking some pictures, and he's walking through reports of a life, and then he goes out into the garden and dies. You know what I mean? Right. Like, that could have been a, You know what? Damn. That would have been a lot better. Let's Got, re-edit this Hashtag, movie. <laughs> no, remake Gandhi. Um, I'm in. Let's do it. All right. I'll cast an actual Indian person. Full or at Indian. least someone who's well-respected and partly Indian. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben Kingsley, this was like his first like major role, really. Like, oh, wow. He hadn't really done anything before this. He was just like a little acting student. Damn. Oh, I do want to say too, speaking of that, like I thought the makeup in this film was so good. Like the, yeah, the brown. No, the aging. Like the aging makeup <laughs> that they did on everybody, especially on Ben Kingsley, I thought yeah. it was like really well. And like I the agree. progressiveness of it was yeah. really good. I completely agree with that. Because how old was he when he when he filmed this? I think he was like fairly young. But I don't know for sure how old he was. Okay. I think like 
in the early stuff that like when he's playing young Gandhi, I think that was closer to what he actually looked like. Yeah. So sure, sure. And then he plays. I don't know. Gandhi seemed really old by the time he died. So. Oh yeah. And no, his his acting. I mean, was phenomenal. He won for best actor. Yeah. Yes, he did. Good, deservingly so. Mm-hmm. Especially now that he's part Indian. Especially now that we know it wasn't <laughs> yeah. completely brown face. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. All right. <laughs> All right. You want to know other people thought about it? I do. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 92% and a critic score of 85%. Critics' consensus reads, Director Richard Attenborough is typically sympathetic and sure-handed, but it's Ben Kingsley's magnetic performance that acts as the linchpin for this sprawling, lengthy biopic. At the box office, it made $127.8 million domestically, uh, but it was the highest-grossing film of the year in the UK, and in India, it remains one of the highest-grossing imported films of all time. At the Oscars, it was nominated for 11 and won 8. As far as its legacy, um, the British Film Institute listed it at number 34 on their list of the 100 best British films. Right on. All right. So now it's time for the question that our podcast is based on, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Did the Academy get it right when it awarded Gandhi Best Picture? I don't know. Can we really say that without having seen Missing? That's true. We can't. So we'll put an asterisk next to this decision. Okay. I'm oh, going to say... Oh, you're asking me? Sorry. Yeah, unless you want me to answer. Let's, let's do it at the same time. Okay. What are we going to say? Yes or I, no? I have no idea. Okay. But we're saying like yes or no. Yeah. Okay. One, one two, two, three. three. No. No. <laughs> no, I think I think looking at movies that are still culturally um, important and good... I don't know what I'm trying to say right now. You, just, you really think Tootsie should have won, huh? I think E.T. should have won. E.T.? I think E.T. is like... <laughs> by far the best film in this bunch of the ones we saw again we did not see missing yeah. so can't say for missing can't say for sure but of the ones i saw i would pick et as the best film i mean i would too Devin. certainly mm-hmm. but but and so would richard attenborough so we still yeah <laughs> it gets the director of gandhi's uh, stamp of approval <laughs> but i think we have uh more films to discuss we do like every other year there are a few films that weren't nominated for best picture that maybe should have been so next week we're gonna do our supplemental episode where we discuss some of those um if you'd like to watch along before you listen we are going to be talking about sophie's choice the king of comedy and das boot das boot das boot is that okay i don't know that's fine you said dwarves earlier so (laughs) that's true what happens when i copy and paste (laughs) it's wikipedia that's wrong okay that's true uh so yeah so that's it for this episode per usual we came in listening to the best song winner of the year which was up where we belong from an officer and a gentleman but it is outrageous that that song won best song when it was up against one of the most like iconic film songs of all time. So that's what we're gonna go out listening to. The I theme the tiger from ET. What from Rocky Three? What? Yes. Okay. 